In 2007, these lies resulted in Purdue Pharma pleading guilty to felony charges of misbranding Oxycontin and paying more than $600 million in criminal penalties. However, this did not stop Purdue's marketing campaign. It just sent it underground. It's the 2007 settlement. More than 2,600 federal and state lawsuits were brought against Purdue, seeking restitution for the pain and suffering caused by Purdue and the Sacklin family. Welcome to our second episode with Carol Panera, a whistleblower from Purdue Pharma. In our last episode, she described her life as a sales representative at Purdue Pharma. In this episode, she gets personal and introspective and incredibly candid. We'll find out what it's like for Carol since she blew the whistle on Purdue Pharma, what kind of backlash she's received, what life has taught her now that she's had time to think about what her job was, its aftermath, and our future. I am Jeffrey B. Simon, and this is Outside Counsel. How long were you trained by Purdue before you were sent out in the field to promote OxyContin? Phase one training was two weeks. And we went to the corporate office and he stayed there for two weeks. He had the weekend off, but you know, we had tests and things that we had to pass. So, you know, you couldn't just, it wasn't like a big party weekend. You had to study. Um, and then I believe after you were there a year, they brought you in for another two weeks of training. But we had district meetings every quarter. We had a national meeting once a year. We had a regional meeting, I think, twice a year. And there was some training that was done at those times as well. But you were promoting OxyContin two weeks after you trained. Correct. Were you trained by any physicians? Yes. Okay. They did, have, they did have some physicians come in. I remember we had a couple of people from the Montefiore Hospital in New York and also from um, one of the other big hospitals in New York. I can't remember it. But yeah, we did have a couple of physicians come in and talk to us. What kind of doctors? They were, they were pain doctors or anesthesiologists. Were any of them specialists in addiction medicine? As far as I knew, no. You have demonstrated a very specific set of recollections. You really do remember very clearly a lot of details about the only four and a half years in which you promoted OxyContin. Yes. I have taken the deposition, that is the sworn statements of sales representatives of other drug companies. And each and every one of them, no matter how long they work for a company, is whether they're promoting opioids for 18 years, as recently as within the last decade, or whether it was just a few years long ago, seem to exhibit a profound lack of memory about who they were promoting opioids to and who their right. higher prescribers were and what their actual promotional materials said or didn't say, or who trained them or didn't. Do you find that surprising? No. Uh, for two for two reasons. First of all, uh, personally, I have a, I have a really good ability to remember details, and I'm very detail oriented. So that is just part of who I am. Not to say that some of them aren't as well, but I think if you if you look at where they are in their careers and where they are in their lives, I'm retired, so I have nothing to fear. <laughs> I'm not in the industry anymore. 
So I don't have to worry. People are like, aren't you afraid of Purdue coming after you? I said, I got subpoenaed by the state of New Jersey in September of 2017. I had the FBI call me and come to my house and talk to me about my experience with Purdue. Everything that I said to them is the same as I've told anyone else afterwards. So I feel like I have that protection because I've already said it under subpoena and I've already said it directly to the FBI. So it's not like what I'm telling you is different than what I said to them. And also the fact that I'm not in the industry anymore. Um, like I said, I'm not worried about being blacklisted. I have friends who I know a lot of people, even at Purdue, who felt the same way that I did but have not said anything either because they are now collecting a pension or they're, st they're younger than me and they're still in the industry and they don't want to speak out because they don't want to be blackballed from another pharmaceutical company. So pseudo amnesia about pseudo addiction. Exactly. Might be the result so of fear of repercussions of telling yeah, the truth. They're protecting their own, they're protecting their own livelihoods. That's it. And very recently, I ran into a colleague at Purdue that, that was in my area, in my, in my region, in my district. And I said to him, I told him all, everything that's been going on and, and I, you know, what I've been doing. He mentioned I had seen you on TV, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you guys were there a lot longer than I was. You had to know what was going on. And he said, we all did, but we didn't say anything because we wanted, we we're protecting our retirement. God. And I know for a fact that when my group was hired, that shortly after we were hired, they gave all the existing salespeople there, people who had survived the initial lawsuit, would survive that huge layoff, a $25,000 pay increase for their loyalty. Wow. In the meantime, they hired 110 of us and the salary was non-negotiable didn't matter how much experience you had you wanted to come and work for, they made it feel like come and work for us this is like the greatest achievement you could have that that the bonuses were going to be great and that's justified kind of the because most of us most of us took a pay cut of anywhere from a few thousand to ten thousand dollars to come and work there wow were you ever trained because this is, of course, after 2007, where they pled to a felony. So I know there, there may be nuances. Were you ever trained to tell the less than 1% addiction story to doctors? No, actually, we were trained at my point when I came in to never say that. Okay. That was the claim by Purdue through sales representatives and other promotional outlets that the risk of opioid addiction is less than 1%. And that opioids uh, are more safe and effective to treat even moderate pain uh, than even non-opioids because they're more effective and they're no more addictive. Right. Well, but we were all we were trained to always refer back to that indication right. and that black box warning because the black box warning is the same for all opioids across the board. And I think I had referred to that earlier, that the risk of addiction, potential addiction is the same with any opioid. So, however, we were always trained to refer to that. But then they still kept the graph where they actually shortened the top part of it to make it look like the peaks and valleys were smaller than they were. They still had us out there marketing that. So they doctored the graph 
on peaks yes. and valleys and then had yeah. you go out and promote it. Mm -hmm. Even though at the same time we're saying that, oh, there's a risk for, there's a potential risk for addiction. It's right here, but it's the same for every opioid. So, but then they had us out with this bogus graph that inferred the opposite. Let's talk a little bit about the Sacklers. Purdue Pharma, at the time you worked for them, was a privately owned company by the Sacklers. Right? Yes. And there were three brothers, Arthur, Raymond, and Mortimer. But Mortimer and Raymond were the ones who were day-to-day -day running and focused on Purdue Pharma. Yes. Arthur had made a killing promoting drugs like Valium. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, OxyContin was the special baby of Mortimer and Raymond. Mm -hmm. Well, they also, you know, Purdue also had also made Dilaudid, which yes. is used in a lot of hospitals, and Betadine, which is used before surgery when they cleanse the, yeah. So they, yeah. Yeah. And, and Dilaudid, of, of course, is an opioid. It's hydromorphone, right? Correct. Now, Raymond had a son named Richard, Richard Sackler, and Mortimer had a daughter, Kathy, and Richard and Kathy were also very involved in running Purdue Pharma when you were there. Yes, that was my understanding. I never saw either one of them. Okay. Did you spend much time at the headquarters there in Connecticut or not? The two weeks for training we did, and we were given specific instructions to behave anytime we were in a, in a common area, like an elevator to watch our conversation because you never know who might be getting on with you. It could be, could be Raymond, could be Richard, could be any of the Sacklers. Um, yeah. But I, like I said, I wouldn't know any of them if I tripped on them because we never saw them. Did you ever meet any of the Sacklers? No. Now Richard, takes credit for OxyContin, or at least he has in various public settings, that it was his brainchild. Right. Did you have any understanding when you were a sales representative of whether that's true, that this is Richard Sackler's great innovation as opposed to somebody else there at Purdue? I think the general impression I had was that Richard was running the show because um, we sometimes we would go up to the upper upper floor and we had to do um uh role playing and we had to do it with some of the executives and so you know you kind of hear in a conversation his you know his name mentioned um it was just an impression that i had that he was you know the head guy and in 2010 right in the middle of the time you're working for the company uh, Purdue Pharma brings to market its reformulated so-called abuse deterrent mm -hmm. version of OxyContin, right? Yes. Tell us about that. So we were trained not to say that it could not be abused because the thought was that there's always some idiot out there that's going to figure out a way to circumvent the delivery system. Uh, but that it was naturally we're going to be questioned as to why it was reformulated. And so the answer was to be that it was reformulated with the goal of uh, making it more difficult to 
abuse it. Not that it could not be abused, but that it was, it is an effort to make it more difficult. What happened was that we started hearing feedback that it wasn't working as well as the original formulation. And then come to find out that it, apparently they re-changed the package insert to say that make sure you drink a full eight ounce glass of water with it. Cause if you did not drink enough water, it would turn to kind of gel like the stuff that you get on the back of your credit card, you know, when you've heard that sticky stuff, that it would kind of turn to gel in the stomach and it would not really all of it get into the bloodstream properly so that they, they, we, they changed the instructions to say, take a, a, a whole eight ounce glass of water with it. I was going to say after that, I still heard that it still was not as effective. So to just put in context, the reformulated OxyContin, the thing about OxyContin was, especially in 40 milligram, 60 milligram, 80 milligram, even 30 milligram that people referred to as Oxy 30s, right? Right. You had a very high dose of oxycodone. And whereas the concept was, well, it's going to gradually release into the bloodstream and you don't have the peaks and valleys. As people became tolerant or even addicted and were experiencing withdrawal symptoms, they would often crush the pill so that they could get all of it at once. The original formulation. Right. Right. And so people who wanted to abuse the drug might then snort it or inject it. Right. And the idea of the reformulated OxyContin was, is that it just didn't crush into powder as easily. Correct. Were you ever trained to market the drug as actually less susceptible to abuse because it had been reformulated? No, kind of, kind of the opposite that we were, again, we were specifically told not to, to not say that it was unabusable or not, it, we could not say that it, it was reformulated because now it was, you know, it, it was totally abuse resistant. The, the specific statement that we were to say was that it was reformulated with the intent of making it more difficult to abuse. Is it accurate that Purdue, in your mind, misled you more about original formulation OxyContin than the reformulated one? I think so. How so? I think so. Um, again, with that, you know, having us go out with that graph that that we I found out afterwards, after I was not with the company longer, was doctored um, with the idea that. Um, you know, all opioids are able to be abused. So that kind of leveled the playing field. Therefore, the inference was that, although I could never state it, was that Oxycontin was safer because it lasted over 12 hours because it was an extended release. Um, the idea of, just the idea of even going to general doc, family doctors and telling them to start, you know, that the 10 milligram was an option for patients that had moderate chronic pain. It was an option, you know, to, it, it, when you've exhausted all other possibilities to even start them on an, on an opioid. And pseudo addiction was a straight up lie. And pseudo addiction, of course, yeah. 
but at the time I didn't know that that was, yeah. Um, why are you speaking out? Now? Yeah. Well, like I said, at, at first I, it wasn't voluntarily, I was subpoenaed. And so I had, to, <laughs> I had to speak to the state of New Jersey. And then once that happened, I started getting contacted by some of the um, networks and I started to think a lot on my own as far as like, why is all this kind of coming to a head now? All these um, states, you know, uh, suing the company, uh, the tide is kind of turning. And so I started like investigating and just like reading and kind of drilling down and reading more and more about what was going on. And it became clear to me that the company had a major part of that. And I thought if, if not me, then who somebody has to, has to speak out. And again, I think if I had been 20 years younger and, and had children in college or, you know, had a family to support selfishly, I might've felt differently. But at that point I thought I I'm close to retiring and more than that, this is the, this is the right thing to do. Somebody has to say something. What do you want our audience to know that we haven't talked about? I think the, I think the main thing is to not, is to always question things, is to always question, and don't just accept even, and I, I don't necessarily even want to go into this tangent, but the whole thing with the FDA really got me thinking about how um, they could approve an opioid that caused this much havoc and this much damage. And not to say that some of the people who um, misused the medication are not responsible for their own personal behavior. But initially, and I think some of this was because of the impression that the company gave us, I was under the impression that it was, it was people who were using the drug the wrong way and misusing it that had problems with it. Did, and they then I, you, did they make you believe that addicted people were just therefore bad people? Yes, yes. And so subsequently I, I started to realize that it wasn't just people using it, not, not the way that it was intended. It was people who were using it legitimately and properly that were having an issue with it. And that's what I think really the light bulb went off in my head and I thought somebody's got to say something because this is not just misdeeds by people, you know, snorting the drug and, 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 you know, selling it on the street and that type of thing. This is people who legitimately, you know, had pain from a car accident, went to the doctor, the doctor or, or worked in a coal mine. My son went to college in West Virginia, worked in a coal mine and had an injury from that. And the doctor, prescribe them with all good intentions, something that was going to help them and maybe did help them in the beginning. And then it just, they just fell into that abyss. Why did you leave Purdue in 2013? I left for a number of reasons. Um, my dad had passed away in 2012, the year before. And I started to, you know, you start to think about your own mortality and where my life was going. And I was so unhappy working there. 
It was getting harder and harder to work there. Um, the managers were, our manager would come out and ride with us every single month, sometimes every three weeks. I've worked for companies where my manager came out twice a year and worked with us. This was like constant pressure from the company. And the other side of that was that it was becoming more difficult to see doctors. A, because they were starting to become um, negative, even more so toward the product. The publicity that we were getting was horrible. Managed care was making it difficult for doctors to have time to see reps. So, and then the company was putting more and more pressure on us to see the doctors more and more often. And yet I couldn't even get into the office. The company in some instances wanted us to go to the office every week. And yet that same office would say to me, I only need to see you here every two months. If I don't go in every week, I get a bad review on my job review. But if I go in every week, the office at some point is going to say to me, you're, you're banned from the office. Right. You should be out promoting OxyContin. You should be in doctor's offices right now. Right. But then the office, if I'm in there every week, is going to say, the doctor's office is going to say, we do not want you in here every week. Stop coming here every week. So if you tick them off, you're not going to get anywhere. But if I don't adhere to what the company wants me to do, I'm going to get a negative job review and maybe it's going to impact my bonus, my raise, and maybe even my ability to hold my job. So you're getting pressure from all sides and it, it starts to eat away at you. I was supposed to go to a national meeting. It was a Sunday. Had my plane ticket. I hadn't even packed. I was supposed to leave for the airport in a half an hour. And I said to myself, I cannot do this anymore. The managers were already out. This was in, in Phoenix. The managers were already out there. I called and got my manager's voicemail and left a message and said, I'm giving you my two weeks notice. I'm not coming out to the meeting and I'm giving you my two weeks notice. Do you know, no one got back to me for a whole week. Wow. Now in 2013, we're already in the middle of an opioid epidemic, right? And was it your perception that in the middle of that opioid epidemic and all the bad, bad publicity that Purdue Pharma was getting at the time because of Oxycontin being a, a, a drug uh, at the core of that epidemic, that the manager kept coming out to make sure you were still driving demand for opioid Oxycontin prescribing in the way that that manager intended? Yeah, and it wasn't just me. They were, the managers across the country were instructed to ride with their salespeople all the time. So there were eight of us. And so you figure if there's 21 working days in a month, that's two days a month for every rep. And then maybe they have a day, you know, three days a month that they can do administrative stuff. The rest of the time, they're supposed to be out in the field working with us all the time. And not just me, across the board. Literally driving with sales representatives to drive more opioid prescribing with physicians in the yes. middle of an opioid epidemic. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. This is not the first time you have spoken about some of your experiences as a sales representative of Purdue, because you've given news interviews before and you've been subpoenaed, you said, is that right? Yes, correct. When did those events occur? Um, I was subpoenaed in the, the September, I believe, of 2017 and actually got contacted by the FBI um, as well. I thought it was kind of a 
phony call at first and I took the phone number and when I called back, it was legitimate and that was a little disconcerting <laughs> contacted by the FBI. Um, and then subsequent to that, um, I started getting contacted by a lot of the news media, um, different attorneys, actually internationally. I had, I had people in France, in Germany call me because they were concerned that Purdue was still marketing in Europe under Mundi Pharma and that the same thing was going to happen there. Then all the major news uh, outlets, CBS, ABC, um, I did something for Fox Nation. Um, I did something actually for Dateline, which has not aired yet because I think they're still trying to get um, some information or an interview with uh, one of the Sacklers. What, what kind of feedback have you gotten, good or bad, uh, about? Well, the first interview I did was with CBS, I actually found somehow someone, I guess through Facebook or whatever, got a hold of my number and left me some nasty message on Messenger saying that um, I should die and go to hell for speaking out now because. You know, after I marketed this horrible drug that caused all these problems and, um, you know, shame on me. But that was really the only negative um, feedback. I actually had um, someone that I worked at another drug company with got get in touch with me and say that she was really um, proud of me for speaking out and happy that I spoke out because she had never told anyone but her sister had um, a problem with addiction subsequent to being prescribed Oxycontin for an injury. And she had struggled with addiction for a few years. And five years later, now she's clean and, and in a good place. But um, she was um, wanted, wanted to uh, commend me for, for speaking out and bringing attention to, um, to, to the issue. Wow. So in the time since you began speaking publicly about this history uh, that you had at Purdue, has anyone from the company itself or some representative of the company made any effort to contact you? No, thankfully, no. I have not been um, subject to any kind of intimidation or, or any kind of um, threats as far as that's concerned. Well, thank goodness. Yes. Well, I cannot thank you enough for your time and your candor and your courage. You are remarkable. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to help. And like I said, if, 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 if I don't do it, then who's going to do it? Someone has to say something. And if in any small way it, it, it gets things moving in the right direction, then that's a good thing. Yeah, the truth will always do. If you or someone you know is struggling with opioids, please visit www.addictioncenter.com to learn more about the available resources in your community. This podcast is produced by Shannon McDees of Revel and Convey and Larry Shivana. The opinions expressed on outside counsel are neither legal nor medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, experts, and or host. They do not expressly nor necessarily reflect the opinion of any institution with which I am or ever have been a member and should never be attributed as such. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Outside Council. I'm Jeffrey B. Simon. On the next episode of Outside Council, 
I'll be turning the microscope onto wholesale pharmaceutical distributors and how their willful ignorance and murky business practices fuel the proliferation of opioid abuse 